0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. And every eye will see him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and He will make all things new. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.
1: Father, as we bow now together under your word, we ask that you, by your spirit, will strengthen us. God, will you provide the comfort that is needed in this congregation this morning? By your spirit, will you open our eyes to see the truth from your word so that we would apply what we read and what we hear into our lives individually and corporately as a congregation. Father, I pray that you will use me as your servant to just bring your word and minister grace to the hearers this morning. I thank you for those that are here gathered and for many who are watching online who are not able to be with us in person this morning. Meet with us. You know exactly where we are and exactly what we need And you are the one who is able to meet all of our needs. And we thank you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me. Revelation chapter 2. And this morning, our sermon will come from verses 12 through 17 as we continue the study of this letter, these seven letters. And this morning, we'll look at the compromising church. And it's the church at Pergamum, the compromising church. Now, some of you know how how challenging it can be to find a good church within driving distance of where you live, where you can be engaged in the body life. What are people generally looking for in a church? And I'm kind of speaking specifically for our country, all right, the, here in the in the in the West. What are they looking for? Do they want a church that meets all their personal demands? Or are they looking for a faithful community that holds high the word of God and strives together to fulfill in love all that Christ has commanded of us? It can be tempting for any church, any leadership group in a congregation to begin to blur the lines of truth, doctrine, principles, even the bedrock of Christianity to try to fit in with a culture that's imploding around us. And sadly, we read all too often of people who have deconstructed is what it's called. They have walked away. The Bible terminology is apostasized. They once professed and then they walk away from the truth only to reveal that they never genuine, genuinely believed. Just in the month of November, there's been two major releases. One from Pope Francis saying, it's okay, allow those who are in LGBTQ lifestyles to now be godparents, to adopt, to participate in communion. And just three days ago, the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, he gave basically the same thing that we need to be loving and united. And that is more important than anything. It's happening all around us. So as people look for a church, the questions are often self-centered. Hey, what can the church do for me? What, what, what can your church do for me, Pastor? How, how will you serve me? How, tell me about your kids' ministry. How many kids do you have in the children's ministry? What your playground look like? You know, And, and how fun, will my kids have fun? And tell me about your youth ministry and how fun they will have and how many games will they play? How many kids are there? And, and what do you have going on there? Are these the right questions to be asking? We've had people leave our congregation because, well, we are looking for a church that has more of X fill in the blank. What do you say? Scripture has a lot to say about it. A lot to say about it. It's not wrong to have playgrounds for children. It's not wrong for kids to have a good time at camp and when we gather together, we do. We have great time together, but that's not the main thing. That's not the primary thing. Our primary thing is that we would glorify God and reach people for Jesus Christ. And if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? And if other things are pressing their way in as more important than glorifying God and worshiping together with the body of Christ gathered, then we need to evaluate our priorities. And I say this often. So how about approaching church membership in this way? Hey, pastor, hey, elders, is the church committed to making disciples and carrying out the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I be part of serving the Lord here in a gathered way, a literal way, a physical way? Is there room for me to grow? Is there a place for me to love others and be loved and forgive and receive forgiveness? Are we Christ centered in our preaching or is it man centered? Please spare me from another sermon of five tips on whatever to help give you another, you know, list of do this and do that and go this way. All the religions of this earth give you that stuff. Self help. That's not gospel-centered. It's not Christ-centered. And at the end of the day, like we talked about men as we gathered yesterday, it leaves you trying to keep up with your standard or somebody else's standard, and we all feel miserable if we're honest because we're all failing all of the standards. So what is the Lord's standard for us? And then we actually realize he's the one that enables us to do all that he's commanded us to do. How about that? Now, last week, we saw that Smyrna was commended. There was no rebuke to them. They endured through tribulation, abject poverty. They were pure. But what will the Lord have to say about the next church up on this circuit? And the question that I would have for myself and for us as elders and for us as a congregation, if the Lord Jesus walked in here this morning and said, I actually have a letter for you, Richmond." I know your works. What would he say? Because at the end of the day, what we say about ourselves and what we say about one another, if Jesus says something differently, what he says goes. Because he cannot lie. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. So again, each of these messages, they begin with, there's an introduction, introduction, all right? The letter is gone. We looked at Ephesus, last week Smyrna, this week Pergamum. There's an introduction where Jesus gives. I'm moving on to the next church. This would be read in the hearing of all of the churches, all seven churches would hear everything that Jesus said, whether it be condemnation or commendation to each of these churches. So the letter's written to the pastor and the people of Pergamum. The angel there, I believe that is, the the messenger, the one who brings good news, glad tidings. Little is known about whoever the pastor is there of the church at Pergamum. But he received this letter with the church leadership and he was responsible, carry out the Lord's command. You've heard, you've understood, now put it into practice and do what the Lord has said in the middle of a pagan city. This church was at Pergamum. The ecclesia is the, the, the word. It means called out ones. The city of Pergamum was about 55 miles northeast of Smyrna. Sometimes it's called Pergamon or Pergamum. It was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. So this city is significant because the Roman emperor gave the permission, gave the authority to the leadership of Pergamum to carry out executions the sword they were an official outpost the capital city of asia minor of rome and they were they were authorized for capital punishment they were given the sword now as i've said each of these letters the people receiving the letter there would be something that they would say ooh that's really meaningful to us, and some of that is lost to us two thousand years later, and we are not familiar with well, what's going on in this city. Now, this city is an elevated city. All right, there's a the photo come up of the Pergamum Theater, and this was the—I mean, this looks like the cheap seats in what used to be. You know, uh, if you've ever been to the White Sox Stadium, I mean, it's like that. You are way up there in the nosebleed section. This is a steep theater there in Pergamum called the royal city the city of authority its name means citadel in greek it was up on a high hill so there was a posture that this city had that you can't take the city because we can see what the enemy coming from a long way away and we've got this their claim the fame was the term parchment comes from pergamum all right this was an educated city There was a library in the city, and I don't know if anybody's there today, if you want to check out a book, but I kind of don't think so, all right? Now it's ruins. Over 200,000 volumes were in this library, second only to Alexandria. Pliny called this, this city by far the most distinguished city in Asia. All right, so when you start thinking about our nation, you start thinking about all of these just wonderful places and education and and museums and places of, you know, just in time, that's what it looks like. Oh, no, not our cities. Not Washington, D.C. would never look like that. Lansing, no, 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 there's universities in Lansing. Ann Arbor will never look like that, they would have said 2,000 years ago. Look at our citadel. Yeah, look at it now. What are you living for? Education? That's what it looks like if it's just for education and not for the glory of God. This city was devoted to idolatry. There'll be a photo of a Slepius. All right, now this, if you go see the doctor or you watch the ambulance go by, you still see the effects of this, this serpent on the cross. All right, still, it's still known there was, uh, I don't have all of the pictures right? holylandphotos.com or .org this, uh, Rasmussen is his name and I get a lot of these photos and you can just search the holy land just all over the place these photos, that come from there this is a life-size statue that was found at Epidaurus and the symbol there on his staff was also on the coin of Pergamum Demeter Athena, Dionysius, they were also worshiped there along with Orphic elements. There in the city was a famous giant altar of Zeus, a massive altar. This altar was discovered in Pergamum and and the sign where this is now is in Berlin. It reads Pergamon, the other spelling, Zeus Altar. The temple where this altar would have sat was up on the edge of the city, and the altar was massive. You'll see at the outdoor where, where, the, where this came from originally. Just a massive altar. The time this letter is being written, there is activity happening all around all of these places. The location of this altar overlooked the city on its citadel. Some have suggested, suggested that this is the background to what we just read. This is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan dwells. This is hell on earth. There's a life-size replica in Berlin of this altar. So imagine you're going to that place to plant the church. Eric and Amy went and visited, and he sent me a picture. And there's a, there's a model, and the next picture will come up that he took of this when they visited and they, they saw this in Berlin. He sent me this picture. There in Pergamum, it was devoted to all of these gods, but they were also devoted to emperor worship. And it was one of the first cities of Asia to build a temple to the Roman emperor. You'll see a, head, the, a photo of a head of Alexander. It was the center of emperor worship. Patriotism on steroids, okay? You will worship. You will say Caesar is Lord. It's the center of this cult, an official center for emperor worship. The temple of Trajan was uh, built later, and that's what it looks like now. Up there on the hillside, you can see um, out behind it, is, is, it's related. The next picture will come up, and you can see the trees that we were looking at off in the distance where that altar was, off to the right of the screen. There's that tree where that temple was, or where that altar was of Zeus. So it's just, it's overlooking the city. It's this majestic view. It's this, we are invincible. We have all of this worship. We have all of the gods. We have this place over here for medical treatment. We have all of these things. We have the best of the best of the best. And there's a church there. And the church refuses to say, Caesar is Lord. So they're ostracized. They're not part of any of this. They're separated from it. This letter is from Jesus, and who is he revealed here? The powerful and living word of God. Jesus is the powerful and living word of God. And so each of these letters receive a description that that is anchored back in chapter 1 from John's view as the revelation of Jesus, that Jesus is the word made flesh. John's gospel repeatedly emphasized the identity of Jesus Messiah as the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word made flesh. And we see that. He's in, in, in the incarnation. The eternal God became human. Human. Jesus, then, therefore, because he is God and he is man, he is the one who is worthy to judge all humanity. No one else's standard, not even my own standard, is sufficient to judge me. He is the one who is worthy to judge. So is description, the words of him who has the sharp, two edged sword. The Lord Jesus comes to this church, and listen, if somebody comes to visit you at your house and you say, hey, come on in, and they say, hey, thanks for having me in, and they're just sitting there with a sword in your doorway, you know, and they do the whole how sharp is it, and they set it on their thumbnail, and it just holds its own weight. Aren't you going to be wondering, like, hello, (laughs) you want to help carve the turkey, or what are we doing here? Jesus comes and he comes bearing a sword. It's a strong and divine description because the sword symbolizes judgment. So Rome may have given, and they did, Pergamum power and authority to carry out execution, judgment here on earth, but Jesus comes bringing a sword from heaven. And he's coming to his church. The word of God is a cutting word. It's a razor sharp judging word that no mortal man can stand against. I mean, if you talk to people and they say, you know, if there is a God, when I die, I'll stand before him and I've got a thing or two to say to him. Not according to the razor sharp cutting judging word of God, you don't. He made you. The Bible says it this way, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God, would you read this with me? Read this out loud with me. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the word of God. And it does what no human being can do. I can't do this as a preacher. I can't get all the way to your heart. If I'm bringing my own ideas, my own stories, that goes nowhere. When I bring the word of God, it goes exactly where God intends it to go, and it does what God intends for it to do, and the result, the fruit of it is everlasting. That's the word of God. And Jesus comes bringing the sword what does this church receive in the message and we see these uh three points in the message that jesus has for them maybe that's why a lot of times we have three points in a message like hey jesus had three points so let's go with that all right praise from jesus he begins there he has an affirmation for them he has commendation he says the same thing that he said to the other i know I, i oida i know by experience i have knowledge of what you're going through i know your location I know where you live, all right? Now, if anybody ever tells you that, and you, I mean, they might use that as a threat, like, I know where you live. Okay, that's not good. You know, I got doxxed. Everybody knows where I live. Like, great, maybe not. And Jesus says, I know where you live. You dwell where Satan's throne is, And then he says in the same section, he repeats it again, he he mentions it twice, which increases the significance and the cultural pressure that they were experiencing. And he says, it's where Satan dwells. I have complete knowledge of your situation. That there was a temptation for extreme patriotism there in Pergamum to cross over into realms of idolatry that was everywhere. Now I know none of us are tempted in that way that we get so caught up in politics that we forget the gospel. That we're so caught up in the next thing coming that well I don't really have time to serve at church but I got this rally to go to and I got this thing to go to and I'm watching these YouTube videos and I'm over here and I'm over there and I'm all worked up. Pergamon. They lived in the center of hell on earth. And how in the world were they supposed to function? Jesus says, I know where you live. I put you there. You were born where I had you be born. You're not there by accident. Yeah, well, you don't know where I work. No, I don't, probably. But the Lord does. Well, you don't know the family I was raised in. Yeah, maybe not. But the Lord does. He knows exactly where you live. And then he says this, he says, and I know your loyalty. I know your loyalty. You stood bravely even though you lived in the middle of hell on earth. And he said it this, you kept holding fast to my name. Originally, we weren't called Christians. Followers of Christ were known as followers of the way until it began to be a derogatory term. Look at those little, little, little Christs. You see those little Christs over there? What are they doing? They keep gathering, and they gather in all these you know offshoot places. They're not in the middle. They don't have big buildings. And Who are these the misfits? And what is this that they do with the, the body and the bread of their Lord, and they're eating, what are they, cannibals? And then the Catholic Church actually adopted that slur. To say, actually, no, we we will believe that it is the actual body and blood of Jesus. That was a slight against Christians. That was mockery against them. That they gather and they're eating the body and blood of their Lord. These people are, whoo, they're crazy. Christians. And believers are like, well, if you see Jesus in me, I'm not going to actually take that as a slam. You can label me that. It wasn't a self-label. What are we going to call ourselves? Let's call ourselves like the best church in the world. Put that on the sign. But when other people say, you remind us of Jesus, thank you. We'll take that. Oh, that I could remind you of Jesus all the time in every thought, every motive, every action. They, the old English is this way. Thou dost keep on holding. They're like a pit bull that has prey in its teeth, like our neighbor dog that came over and grabbed our little scout. Kicking that dog as hard as I could, and he's like, not letting go. Well, he did let go. They didn't. My foot won. They kept holding on to the name of Jesus. He says this, you did not deny the faith. You did not deny my faith. Do you hear that? Do you see that in the text? It's the faith. It's my faith. Jesus says, it's mine. So if you borrow my car and you bring it back, and you're like, hey, you know, I changed out your rims. I found some on the side of the road. I thought they were better. I got your vehicle painted. Actually, my grandson is really good at painting. He, you know, sprayed it up for you. I didn't really think you need windows in it, so we took those out. You can't. That's my car. Jesus says, you did not deny my faith. If it's his, then what doctoring can we do with it? All right, let's get together as elders and let's work on the faith. Wait a second, it's Jesus' faith. How about we understand what he believes and what he says and let's just do that. It's his. They didn't deny the faith. And it cost them their lives. They experienced martyrdom. And he mentions the name that we don't really know a lot about, this Antipas. But he was, in fact, martyred. He was killed because of his testimony. That's where the word comes from. He gave testimony to Christ. They said, renounce Christ, deny Christ. And he said, no, we'll kill you. We bear the sword. And he said, I'm not backing down. And they took his life. Church history records, and we don't know if it's this Antipas or not, but being burned alive inside of a brazen bull. The inventions of ways that they put Christians to death so that other people would be intimidated and say, you don't want that to be your end, do you? Then deny the name. Disown the name. Deny the faith. And down through the history, believers have said, no, your fire will burn for a minute, but eternal fire burns forever I'll take the minute. I was just listening this morning to the testimony of Hooper. The Hooper, and and as he laid there, he marched, people just, they couldn't even hardly get him to the stake. And as he's at the stake, there he is under, under, this was under uh, Bloody Mary. And there he is at the stake for preaching the gospel and not renouncing. And he's like, oh, you need some more you know, piles of wood over here. You're missing this kind of wood here. Put some more there. Put some more. Get a little closer to me. Gunpowder, you know, straw. He's like, all right, you're good. You know, here's my clothes. He's standing there like... They light the fire and the wind keeps blowing it away. He's like, come on, bring some more wood. Bring the fire. Until it, it was horrific the way he died. His arm fell off in the fire. With his other arm, he beat his breast and it stuck to the iron that they had until he fell asleep. 45 minutes, he was in the fire. All he had to do was say that, deny the name, deny the faith. No, bring some more wood. Do you got any dry wood? Well, what's the problem then, according to Jesus? He says, well, I have a few things against you. Immorality and bad theology crept into the church. Came in like a Trojan horse. There were some in the church, they were teaching error. And then there were others in the church that were just allowing it to continue. Some, had, according to Jesus, caved into to the doctrine of Balaam. What's going on here? There were some in the church that compromised. They began to conform to the surrounding culture. And it's like that slow fade, the slow compromise. So he said they, they caved into to the doctrine of Balaam. What's that all about? Well, back in Numbers 22, 23, 24, Balak he hires Balaam as this false prophet to come he, and I want you to come curse Israel. No, I'm not going to do it. He sends another day. You know, finally, okay, but I'm only going to say what the Lord has for me to say. Balaam gets on the donkey. The donkey's on the way, and then you remember the angel of the Lord stands in front of the donkey, and the donkey just you know goes down, and and Balaam's like, come on, well, you're making me look bad. He's talking to the you know the beast. Finally, the beast that, you know, runs him into a wall. He's like, that's it. You've been my donkey all this time. What are you doing? And then the donkey begins talking with him. Can't you see the angel in front of you with the sword? You catching the connection there? Angel with the sword? He's talking with the donkey like, yeah, but... Everybody's looking at him like, what is going on? And that angel, actually, the donkey saves his life from that angel... So he goes and he only blesses the people of Israel, but then in Numbers 25, Balaam gives Balak another idea. He says, you know, I'm not gonna gonna curse the people of God because I can't, but if if you wanna win, if you wanna defeat them, then here's what you do. Give them your daughters in marriage. Give them your daughters. Immorality and idolatry. Just let them start sleeping with your daughters. That's all you gotta do. Uh, immorality and adultery, and Numbers thirty-one tells us that the Lord's vengeance upon Midian through the children of Israel—it was awful. It was horrendous. He brought the judgment. Twenty-four thousand died that God judged. Twenty-four thousand of His own people with a plague for that immorality, for that idolatry. That they didn't have to, but they gave in and they saw those women and they began to have sexual relations with them and the Lord had an issue with it. And Balaam was judged by the Lord and Midian was judged by the Lord and his people were judged by the Lord because they were idolatrous. They were partaking of pagan feasts and that began to happen there in Pergamum. Hey, if you want to be regarded as not a threat to society not a terrorist, you're not patriotic enough, then you need to come when we have town festivals, you better be there. And if you're not, then we're going to be watching you. Big brother, going to be watching you. But those pagan banquets were no place for believers to be. Loved ones, you and I have to do, we have to be cautious about where we go when it's work parties, when it's you know political gatherings, we have to be cautious because we don't belong to our employer and we don't belong to the state we belong to christ and so there's a temptation to go and do what everybody else is doing and deny the name of christ not represent him but they'll make fun of me but they'll put me out in this condition we won't i won't be able to feed my family if i don't bow down at their altar then it's going to have real cost and real consequence to my family. And I love my family. And, you know, the Lord would really want me to honor my family and take care of my family, not at the expense of dishonoring the Lord. Along with the pagan feasts were all types, fornication, sexual perversion, immorality, but believers are called, be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy. All the citizens were expected to participate in that civil religion. But Christians, they couldn't. And they wouldn't. Well, some not only caved into the doctrine of Balaam, idolatry, immorality, but there were some who were creating space in the church for the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And here's where we get bad theology that they began to actually spiritually sanction immorality. Jesus already said to the Ephesian church, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans, and I commend you, you hate the works as well. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, when it came to bad theology, gospel confusing teaching, he said, 'I, I I didn't flinch in that. I didn't back down for a second, not for one hour. The church has always dealt with the threat of liberality or licentiousness, just liberty to no end. I can do whatever I want to do because I prayed the prayer. I'm the son of a preacher. I did all these things. I give whatever. Of course I name the name of Christ, and then I just live my life and do whatever I want to do. The false notion that we can do whatever we want to, because isn't God love? Love is love and God is love and so he's just permissive like this, this poor to have pity on this poor grandfather up in the sky and he just loves everybody. How many times have I said it? God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. It's a perfecting love. It's not permissive. So the church has always dealt with the threat of legalism. I, I want to read. I, I just, this came across this morning. This is what the Archbishop of Canterbury said three days ago. See if my eyes can actually read this. For the large majority of the Anglican communion, the traditional understanding of marriage is something that is understood, accepted, and without question, not only by bishops, but their entire church and the societies in which they live. For them, to question this teaching is unthinkable, and in many countries would make the church a victim of derision, contempt, and even attack. For many churches, to change traditional teaching challenges their very existence. Right. For a minority, we can say almost the same. They have not arrived lightly at their ideas that traditional teaching needs to change. They are not careless about Scripture, they do not reject Christ, they hold to His name, but they have come to a different view on sexuality after long prayer, deep study, and reflection on understandings of human nature. For them to question this different teaching is unthinkable in many countries in making the church a victim of derision, contempt, and even attack. For these churches not to change traditional teaching challenges their very existence. Do you hear it? Like it's right off the page of Pergamum? If we don't adapt a culture, we're not going to fit in and people, you know, they won't, have, they won't come and worship here and we'll be Irrelevant. Adapt a culture and you'll look like Pergamum looks now. You cease to be biblically relevant because you're exploring the thoughts and the heart of man. And what does Jeremiah say? The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. Next verse, God. So then what's the prescription from Jesus? In verse 16, he gives two options. They had a they have one big problem, okay? Weak leadership in the church. Their leadership there refused to judge. They refused to discern. They refused to deal with, with ongoing sin. False teachers in the church spreading it, you know, having a Bible study, whatever. Advocating compromise with the imperial cult for reasons that appealed to human reasoning like I just read to you. Sadly, it's so true of so many churches today. Andy Stanley comes from a line of a a father that was, you know, faithful in preaching the word for many years, and now he's saying the same thing. Well, if we're going to be relevant to the culture, that we have to, he said this years ago, we have to unhinge from the Old Testament. Yeah, you unhinge from the Old Testament, you unhinge from the gospel. We don't take it lightly. Option number one from Jesus, you can deal with those in sin. He says, therefore, repent. Do a 180. Do it right away. You either obey me or you cave into those people. Carry out proper church discipline. How does compromise like this take place? Once something was rejected, that's wrong. That's sin. But then in time, you begin to think, well, you know, we should be, here's the key word of today, tolerant. Tolerant. Okay. Everybody will be tolerant of everything except one group. One group. Followers of Jesus Christ. There will be no tolerance for that group of people. So rejection makes room for tolerance. Tolerance makes room for acceptance. And where does acceptance end up going? Celebration. That's how compromise happens. What was once rejected is now celebrated. Look at our history as a nation. What was once unthinkable, no way, you can't do that. Now, when, when young people say, actually, we're going to get married and then we're going to live together in a home. What? You're not going to live together first? Who do you think you are? What was once rejected is now celebrated. What was once in the closet is now paraded in the streets. And from our White House, and from our State House, and from Ambassador you know, all around the world, we celebrate what was once, what what scripture forbids, rejects. How's that gonna work out? Ask the one with the sword in the mouth. A.W. Tozer says it this way, a new decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christians, people who call themselves Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. Just love, right? Right? a new set of beatitudes too. Blessed are they that tolerate everything for they shall not be made accountable. Well, what did Jesus teach? Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the point. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And let me just pause right there. How, do, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Okay, he loved them, and he told them the truth, and he, and he ate with them, and he saw many of them come to faith. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, because it's the word of God we're following, not counsels or or mere men and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again again i say to you if two or three on earth uh, agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name do you hear it i'm with you i'm in the midst i walk in the middle of the churches i hold the pastors in my hand i grip them in my hand I'm here and I'm the one with the bronze feet and I'm the one with the fire, the sword, the two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. This is no wimpy Jesus. This is no fair skin, just love everybody. This is the word of God made flesh. So Paul applied that process of discipline to the church. 1 Corinthians 5, jot that down, you can read that. We're not going to take the time to read that today, but he deals with the whole passage in a way that the leaders at Pergamum were to deal with the church, those in sin. Option number two. He says option number one, you can deal with them, deal with them in love. Keep watch on yourself lest you're also tempted, okay? But option number two, or you can deal with me. You can deal with them, or you can deal with me and I will deal with them. And I'm the one with the sword in the mouth. You ever have a parent tell you that? You can deal with the problem, or you can deal with me, and I'll be home. And that's what Jesus is saying. And I'll come quickly, I'll be there soon. I'm on my way, I'll be there. I'm coming for a visit. Are you going to be in fear of those people holding to all the tradition around idolatry and immorality or will you fear me because the fear of God is the fear that displaces all other fears. You and I can live for the applause of men or we can live for the approval of heaven but we can't do both. If you live, if I live for the applause of men that's how long it lasts great game great sermon great solo great job at the if that's what we're living for as soon as they're done clapping it's gone and in a few decades somebody's gathering up all the trophies saying what do we do with all these things i mean they were really important we sacrificed for them but we kind of need the space on the shelf For something more important, but these people, Antipas, most important, and so we get to this uh, conclusion, and Jesus again is given a promise that would empower them. This is an empowering promise coming from the Lord. Hey, listen, this is an everlasting promise that He gives. Do you have ears to hear? I have a reward, and he says this. Faithful conquerors will be honored by the Lord Jesus. Promise number one, he says, you know what? You deal with those in the church that are in error. You stand and you hold to my name. Here's promise number one. I'll give you never-ending sustenance. He says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. And what is Jesus doing here when he talks about hidden manna? What does that mean? Oh, they knew. Because he's contrasting what was the presence of the Lord in the center of Israel? The Ark of the Covenant. What did they put inside the Ark of the Covenant was manna. I provided for you. When there was no food to be found, I brought you food from heaven. So there you are, Pergamum. I know where you live, and I will give to you what Rome can't give to you. I'll give you a never-ending sustenance. Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? Do you remember what they begin thinking? If he's our king, we'll never lose because we will never run out of food and the enemy will. He took a boy's lunch and fed a crowd, a massive crowd. If he is on our side, we got this. Sustenance. He said, I have the hidden manna. You're chasing after their bread at the feast? Reject that for what it is and seek me first because he said, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Partake of me. That's a better banquet than what you can get at the throne of Satan. And then he gives a second promise. He says, I'll give you not only never-ending sustenance, but I'll give you never-ending significance. Never-ending significance that Jesus promised to give the overcomer a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, the white stone would have been extremely relevant and understood by the church at Pergamum. For us, white stone? What does that mean, pastor? All right, we have people probably watching. I know sometimes they watch from Africa. If I mention right now the Petoskey stone, okay? If they're in Africa, what does that mean to them? Some, oh, Petos, what? Okay, as long as I lived in Montana and Wisconsin, what did the, Missouri, Kentucky, Illinois, what did the Petoskey stone mean to me? A stone from wherever, something. You sure you can say that in church, Petoskey? I don't know, what's that word? Okay, but here in Michigan, people are like, oh, Petoskey stone, those are hard to find. Yeah, but when you come down to it and you, you, This Petoskey stone, it even becomes more personal when I can tell you, actually, Daria, who's watching online today, with her girl's trip up to the Petoskey area, and she always looks for a Petoskey stone, and she brings it, and she gave this to me. Now there's a personal significance. Now there's a story that's meaningful, and so when we go through Revelation, you have to understand that the people who originally heard the message, they understood it. Perfectly, They knew what Jesus was saying. It meant something to them in Pergamum. And it means something to us in a general way. Potosky's home, we understand what that is. But you didn't know where I got this stone. You didn't know the person. And in time, people will forget and this stone will come, you know, go somewhere or whatever in time. But this stone has relevance to me. Why? Because I love the person that gave me this stone. Do you see what Jesus is doing to them? Because that white stone that would be used, there's several different uses for it. One would be a pendant, put it on a necklace, wear it. Who gave you that? That's beautiful. Another would be if there was there were black stones all over in Pergamum, and if you were in a court case being judged, if the jury came back and gave the white stone, you were innocent. The white stone was also used for access that would be given, that you would have access and entrance because somebody gave you access upon their name. And here we have a new name written down in glory. And it's known by that we are now known by the name of Christ. So do you understand what Jesus is doing? You want to have the stone of a significance of someone who gave it to you? You're gonna live and sacrifice everything for a momentary trophy or applause or fame? Or do you want to have the approval of heaven? The stone that I give you. You wanna go for the governor's stone or you wanna go for my stone? Do you see what Jesus is saying to them? You see how powerful that is? Because Romans 8.1 says, There's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm under a new name. Old me, passed away. All things have become new. That's the stone. So let me ask you this morning, whose approval are you looking for? Whose approval are you living for? There's only one worthy of our lives, and his name is, and you just heard it, Jesus Only one. So how do we live our one life? And this you have to answer the question. I've done my responsibility this morning. You can't apply this for me. I cannot apply it for you. There's only one who's worthy of our lives and his name is Jesus. So as we come to the table Let's deal with the sin in our lives so that we're usable in the hands of the potter for the spread of the gospel of his son. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Will you stand with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how your word just unfolds with beauty and grace and power and glory. Father, will you change us by your word? Will you call that person today under the sound of my voice that has never repented of their sin? They have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed his name. Let today be the day of their salvation, Lord. As we gather around the table, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, of of betraying you by seeking the influence of others around us instead of living for you and your honor, and your glory. Father, you are, you are so good, and Jesus, you are worthy of our praise, you are worthy of our lives, you are worthy of everything. Don't let us, don't let me ever forget you. In Jesus' name, amen.